Hello. Welcome to Healthy Disruptions, a podcast about health and community in Southern California. This season's theme is titled Narrating the Pandemic, Collective Reflections Through the Disruption. We will talk about the lived experiences of individuals surviving and thriving in Southern California through the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for joining us for your healthy dose of disruption. Stay with us. When we asked people how they knew we were in a pandemic, many told us it was the sight of empty shelves at the store. Those first few months of 2020 were all about panic buying and hoarding. Toilet paper, flour, canned goods, hand sanitizer, and cleaning supplies flew off the shelves. Stores were forced to ration these essential supplies. Scenes at the grocery store were even described to us as apocalyptic, like a movie where you could feel the progression of panic. Even the employees at the store were afraid. I specifically worked the back room and I would supply the shelves. So we started the increase in water being delivered and toilet paper, but it'd be gone in the same day. So that's when we started to get a little more serious, like how is this going to affect our day-to-day lives? Well, today on our program, we look at how the pandemic affected our basic needs. Like for instance, what do you do when someone you know can't meet their basic needs? What happens when meeting your basic needs puts your life at risk? And are basic needs merely just food, water, and shelter? Or things? We'll be answering these questions to the stories people told us about their basic needs during the pandemic. I'm Amy Dow, anthropologist, professor at Cal Poly Pomona, cat mom, and now mom to a new little human. I'm interested in how social conditions shape health. And I'm Alejandro Echeverria, a PhD candidate at UC Riverside and a queer resident of Fontana, California. And I'm Michelle Burroughs, a passionate public health professional, health equity advocate, and a resident of the Inland Empire for over 20 years. And we'll be your host for this episode of Healthy Disruptions. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was hard to get things we needed to live and stay safe. I want to tell you about what these empty shelves meant for a 26-year-old woman named Angie, who identifies as Latinx and Native American. She's a social worker and a new mom to an infant daughter. Amy, you mentioned you're a new mom, right? Yeah, so her story really resonated with me because I could relate to the worries she felt about providing for her newborn um, and the shock that she felt as we transitioned into the pandemic. Angie had her child a few months before the pandemic started. And let me tell you, those first few postpartum weeks and months are a weird time. If you're lucky enough or have the ability to take parental leave, you're living in this cocoon where time has no meaning because you're providing 24-hour care, you're sleep-deprived, and you're experiencing all these emotional highs and lows. Um, So here she is, coming out of this cocoon into a totally different world. Angie had only been back to work from parental leave for a week when shelter-in-place orders started. She noticed all her clients stockpiling canned goods. Seeing so many empty shelves scared her so much that she decided that her family better start stocking up too. Instead of a big box store, they went to a 99-cent store, 
where they experienced some extreme desperation. We were, they were closing the stores at eight. So you needed to get in line by a certain amount because, you know, they weren't going to, they were closing. So like people started like trying to put everything they could in their cards. And, you know, me and my, I was, I went with my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, we put everything that we could in the, in the car, anything that we could find. Cause it was hardly anything anymore at that point. Um, and when we were paying, we're going to pay already the, they came in, they had a guns and they just took everything they wanted from everyone's cards, including mine. And they just robbed the place. It was at that moment of being robbed at gunpoint that Angie realized the months ahead would be rough. So when that happened and, and I'm in Hemet, you know, that, that was serious to me because Hemet's pretty quiet. You don't really see that kind of stuff. So when that, that had happened, I felt like, you know, this is going to be chaotic. The chaos that she feared was not only for herself. I was a brand new mom. I had just had a baby. I was trying to get stuff for my kids, you know, because now it's not just taking care of me or my husband, now it's the children. And, you know, I felt I had felt like I had failed them at that time. Even before the pandemic, the guilt around whether or not a baby is eating enough or getting enough love or developing appropriately is a major source of pain for parents, especially new parents. The pandemic made things worse as parents were stretched thin in so many ways from trying to care for children while working from home, dealing with the uncertainty of childcare, or being forced to work in risky situations or conditions when children at home couldn't be vaccinated. At the beginning, the inability to even get food to put on the table or to buy PPE to protect vulnerable children made parents feel helpless. Not only was Angie pandemic parenting, she also got a glimpse of how the pandemic made it hard for other new parents. At her job as a social worker, Angie works primarily with young parents between the ages of 11 and 18 years old. Many of them are single parents who are experiencing financial distress, so they got their basic needs met through WIC, a government-funded program that supports the health and nutrition of women, infants, and children. When Angie learned that the pandemic had made it difficult for her clients to feed their newborns, she did an amazing thing. You know, the pandemic, people were buying everything. So then the people with WIC who could only afford stuff with the label WIC couldn't find the stuff that they needed, which was very difficult. Um, And even like WICs, for some reason, a lot of them were closed. So a lot of my clients were having a hard time getting um, like formula, um, diapers, wipes, to the point that I started giving out my, my frozen milk to my clients. At first, they were hesitant, but they took it because it um, it, it took longer than expected um, to kind of um, hear back from WIC, from a lot of the offices for some reason. So that was a that was a little difficult because you know as a as a you know worker, you know you're trying to do your best for your clients, but then you have to also look out for yourself. And you know, fortunately, I was able to give for um, breast milk to my clients, but you know. That was like at the most desperate points for a lot of them. You know, a lot of them did not want my breast milk. They didn't find it too. Um, they found it like a gross, you know, they were, they were grossed out. But, you know, once things started getting a little bit tight, with especially because formula is expensive and mm-hmm. WIC wasn't responding, they weren't getting their stat or their their stuff. They weren't, they just wouldn't, they didn't, I don't know what happened that the offices closed and they wouldn't respond. 
um, you know, I had to give them breast milk. When we talk about basic needs, there's nothing more basic for an infant than breast milk or formula. It's really the only recommended thing you can feed your children before they're the age of six months. As we're recording this right now in May, 2022, there's a shortage in formula due to supply issues and a recall of contaminated formula, which led to the shutdown of a major US formula producer. Some parents have taken desperate measures by diluting formula to make supplies last, which means that infants are ending up in the ER at risk for life-threatening seizures. The Biden administration has invoked the Defense Production Act to ramp up domestic manufacturing, and the White House is bringing in overseas formula through Operation Fly Formula. So for Angie to share her breast milk with her clients during an especially difficult time was life-saving and also life-giving. Oftentimes, when we think about basic needs, we think about stuff, food items, household items, shelter, but in times of crisis, when the stuff we need can't be bought, or when our institutions fail to provide, it's the human relationships that help us pull through. Please stand clear. The doors are closed. I like that. Thinking about how many people during the pandemic relied on their families, friends, as relationships to help one another get through this difficult time. Oh, can you tell us more, Alejandro? Yeah. Because while I was going through some of these stories and experiences around basic needs, I grew interested in some of the topics I noticed. But what I gravitated to the most were the comments made about transportation or moving around from place to place, getting their basic needs. So why did you decide on transportation and movement? So when people talk about Southern California, people talk about how hard it is to get around, how horrible traffic is and the freeways are. It's no joke. You need a car to get around in Southern California. But what people don't say often is just how bad the bus systems here are. Maybe in some parts it makes sense to not have a car. You can get around there, you know, by walking or taking the metro or using the bus. But not where I grew up. I grew up in the Inland Empire and I took the bus for the first two years of my undergrad at UCR. Although I lived in Fontana, I still do. Riverside was only 20 minutes away, you know, by driving. But for the bus, it would take me around two to three hours each way to get to school and back. It was a rough time. So reading these stories around, you know, some individuals dealing with the pandemic and how they navigated around and met their basic needs, some accounts resonated with me. Yes, the public transportation, it can be challenging around here in the Inland Empire. Can we hear one of the stories? They don't let so many people on the bus. You know, they put some kind of notice that don't sit here and they got one seat open, you know, and two of them with these signs on it, you know. And then if it's too many people, they just pass you up. They stop and say, it's too crowded so we can't let you on the bus. I remember you sharing this one with us. Now, I know it's a short segment, but this individual is from South LA. And during this time, he was experiencing homelessness and came from the Southern California Library. As I heard this observation, I thought of the feeling of waiting on the side of the road, waiting for the bus in the distance. It's route name, you know, running across the top of the heading and the conductor drives by with a face mask on. I imagine, you know, half the bus being filled up as it approaches, the doors open and the driver says, hey, I can't let you on the bus, you know, because they're at full capacity. That must have been rough. 
Yeah, I would feel hesitant about getting on any bus during the pandemic, especially um, in the earlier times when they were telling everybody to physically distance and stay away from enclosed places. That would sort of be like the last place you would want to be right during the pandemic. Yes, I wouldn't feel safe on a bus or on the metro either. I couldn't put myself or loved ones at risk like that. Almost definitely. I remember that's how the news would be a lot. Um, you know, lots of people were being very careful out in public. They made sure to socially distance themselves. Well, most folks did. And I do recall some just went on their day, like as though nothing was different. But some, some individuals who didn't have personal transport, like a car, you know, how, how did they go to, to the store to work or to school? You know, I'm sure, you know, it was a daily risk that they had to take each day, you know, just going to place to place. Yeah, I noticed the man stated that the buses came with yellow tape, you know, like that caution tape that they put on crime scenes. It was like signs on the seats. And it was meant for public safety. I get that. But I just felt that that was very interesting. I also noticed it during um, the pandemic that those were in stores and businesses. Like if you went to a restaurant, whole tables and seating areas were taped off or roped off. Yeah. And that, you know, whole limited capacity thing was um, really hard to get used to. So, you know, people had to wait in lines outside to even get into the store. And so basic things like doing errands just took so much longer. Um, And, you know, that's really inconvenient for a lot of people. I know the signs of the tape were placed there, you know, to to get people to socially distance on the bus and slow down the chances of getting infected. But on a bus, like, it doesn't make, you know, that much sense because it's an enclosed space, you know? So I felt like this was kind of like a very scary thing to see. Uh, You know, on the bus, the windows are, you know, not always openable or they're not always open. And they do have air filters and, you know, AC inside the cabin, you know, to always get new air. But somehow, I don't know how low of your chances of getting COVID were in this enclosed space. I think I remember that some news were talking about how long it would take you to get infected from COVID by being close to someone in enclosed space. You know, like they would do a comparison like versus a store or the sidewalk. By having li- both limited capacity and some seating closed off, this must have hit some writers the hardest. You know, uh, This individual shared that people would get passed by. And I can imagine that some folks experience this often, hoping that the bus arrived soon or on time at the bus stop. And then just getting the sign that they just can't get on board. They missed their connection and were late for work or they just had to go ask for a friend for a ride or get up earlier just in case the the bus was packed. Yeah, although these, you know, measures were probably really inconvenient, they probably did help, um, especially for like going to the store. Uh, But I'm not sure people thought it was as practical for public transit. Yeah, I agree. Not at all. I'm not sure not everyone followed them either. Although well-intended, it created some unexpected challenges for many as we navigated around trying to meet our basic needs. Yeah, with life during the pandemic already straining, how much strain does public transport put on people's lives? How do delays and bus passings affect someone's well-being? Does this put them in a situation of losing their job, 
How are the families affected by these health measures on public transport? These were just some of the questions that went through my mind while going through these testimonies, uh, moving around and meeting their basic needs. And so looking back, seeing the pandemic through how people moved and got around and met their basic needs showed me just how complex a feeling of being around others was. You know, moving from place to place, whether due to work, getting groceries or seeking medical services, really showed me how we are always around other people. You know, we are always connected to one another. Movement may, you know, movement may have put some folks in riskier situations than others and created a sense of paranoia, you know, especially in tight spaces. And all, I learned that moving around places and navigating around the pandemic revealed just how much we really rely and are connected to others. When we think of basic needs, we traditionally think of our need for food and shelter. What about our need for human interaction as a basic need? When we first received Governor Newsom's mandate on March 13, 2020 to shelter at home, many of us were confused. We didn't really understand what that meant. Then as the days turned into weeks, the anxiety started to creep in. I remember my family and friends and colleagues, especially my elders and those that are single stating, wow, I need to get out and see other people. These walls are closing in. I need a hug. I miss my friends and family. As humans, social interaction is essential to our well-being. Research shows that having a strong network of support or strong community bonds fosters both emotional and physical health. The story that resonated with me the most is about a caregiver for the elderly. Before COVID-19, they were their elderly client's companion. They visited and shopped with them. Once COVID-19 hit, they had to single-handedly do all the shopping for food, toilet paper, water, and basic hygiene items. And most times they couldn't find items they were asked to purchase, even after going to stores multiple times. Oh no. So then what would the caregiver do? Would they call their client or drive back to where they were? Yes. And they would let them know, hey, I can't find what you need. Do you want to do without or do you want me to keep looking? And clients would say, yes, keep looking. Others would say, well, uh, I have to go without. Can you go try again? Maybe try again tomorrow or next week? Well, that must have been really stressful for the caregiver not to be able to interact with the clients or help them get the basic needs that they needed. Yeah, the caregiver recalled one client eating beans from a can three weeks in a row because that's all they had. Oh gosh, that's so sad. It is. But what's even sadder was their need to stay safe outweighed their desire for social interaction. The fear of potentially being exposed to COVID-19 frightened them so much that they requested their items be left at the door for fear of catching COVID-19. They were terrified of getting sick and ending up in the hospital. I can only imagine how hard that must have been for the caregiver and the elderly clients. The caregiver said she saw the look of worry on her clients' faces as they peered through their windows, waiting for her to leave the items and drive away. Thinking about that, locking their eyes gives me chills as I can picture how bad they both must have felt. I know you can relate. I remember you mentioning that you weren't able to make your trip to see your father in Washington. Yes, absolutely, I can relate. I share the caregiver's feelings of distress. 
I was agon it was agonizing not being able to lay eyes on my father and connect with him, especially when I could hear the sadness in his voice and the depression setting in from being isolated at home for months. He's very social and loves to be out and about. I felt so helpless, worried. If the shelter at home mandate continued, how would he survive? So what would you say you learned from that experience? I developed a deeper appreciation of the ability to share time with family and friends. And I really appreciate the importance of engagement, love, and support. As humans, we all crave contact. Not having that heightened many people's stress levels and made it hard for them to cope and thus impacted not only their mental, but physical health. I have realized as COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted, I am more intentional about making time for my friends and family and colleagues. I now leave my office to eat lunch. <laughs> I know that sounds a little simple, but I now cherish the time to laugh and enjoy the company of others. I make sure my face-to-face -face interactions are time spent with people that I love and that bring me joy. I invite you all to join me. Let's be intentional about maintaining a good state of mental and physical well-being and stay connected. After all, this is a basic human need. Thank you for listening to Healthy Disruptions. Thanks to Vince Barra from Belzar Music for the beats. This podcast was produced by the Center for Health Disparities Research at the University of California, Riverside, in collaboration with HARC, Health Assessment and Research for Communities, and the researchers from the anthropology departments at Cal Poly Pomona and UC Riverside. Content was developed by our research team in collaboration with loved ones, friends, and neighbors. The podcast is funded by a grant from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the College of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at UC Riverside. To learn more about our work, visit us at healthydisruptions.buzzsprout.com. And to be part of the conversation about this podcast, you can follow the hashtag, hashtag HDPodcast. We'll see you next time for more Healthy Disruptions.